Good evening. Good evening. Good evening and welcome to the first in our series of New Statesman Centenary Debates. The New Statesman was founded in 1913 by a woman, as it happens, despite the androcentric title. And uh, it was an incredible year for feminism. It was the year that Emily Davison threw herself underneath the King's horse in a bid to get the vote for women. It was also the year of the Cat and Mouse Act, which allowed suffragettes on hunger strikes to be released from prison and then re-imprisoned again. One of the most illiberal laws that this country's ever seen. Since then, we've made some excellent progress. Uh, women have got the vote. We had the Equal Pay Act. But women are still grievously underrepresented in Parliament, in the media, and more women are stuck in low-paid jobs and do a lot of unpaid labour in this country. Feminism has also moved on. Uh, some of the things that we'll be talking about tonight, for example, internet porn, uh, probably would have been slightly frightening to the Pankhursts and their friends. Um, but we've decided that we should be here tonight to have a conversation, and that's what we feel that feminism should be. It should be a conversation, and this is just our contribution to it. We can't represent all women, we can only represent ourselves. And we hope, after our initial panel discussion, we'll hear a lot from you guys in the Q&A afterwards. One of the things I'm most proud about about the New Statesman blog section is that we have a 50-50 gender split of bloggers, which is pretty much unknown in the media. Uh, and it's one of the proudest things that I've achieved as editor of the New Statesman website, is bringing these fantastic women, who I'm going to bring out in a sort of slightly showboaty way now. Um, could you come out? <laughs> um, a round of applause, please. My final plea is that one of the best things about employing these women is that I need to pay these women. So um, if you like the things that they write and you like their contribution to feminism, do consider buying a copy of the New Statesman or subscribing. We have copies at the back. And with that plug, I hand you over to Caroline. Right. <laughs> right, thanks very much, Helen. Um, hello, everybody, and welcome to our Future of Feminism discussion. Uh, I'm Caroline Crampton, I'm the web editor of the New Statesman, and I'm your chair for this evening. Um, we've got a great lineup for you, as Helen alluded to. They're all writers for the New Statesman, both in print and online, um, also known as our crack squad of feminist bloggers. Um, and it's very exciting and a little bit scary to see how many of you are here to hear from them. Um, a few bits of housekeeping before I introduce them. Um, the question we want to ask and hopefully answer today is what is the most important issue facing feminism? Um, I'm going to ask each of our speakers to name their choice of issue, um, and then we'll discuss that a little bit among ourselves on the panel. Then we'll pause for a short drink and loo break, um, and then we'll return for questions from you. Um, there are going to be lots of people who want to ask questions, and to try and allow as many contributions as possible, I'm going to make a plea now. Please keep your questions short and make, make them questions, if you can possibly manage it. There'll be a mic going round, wait for it to come to you, and then we'll try and get as many as possible, as many of different answers for you as possible. Oh, I should say as well, there is a hashtag for this debate, should you wish to use it, and it is NSFEM. Um, now your panel. Um, to my far left, Rhiannon Lucy Coslett, co-editor of The Gender Magazine, a freelance writer for New Statesman, Guardian, other places. Next to her, Holly Baxter, the other co-editor and founder of The Gender uh, Magazine, another freelance writer. She also writes for New Statesman, and together, Rhiannon and Holly have just finished writing their book, which will be published later this year, am I right in saying? Spring 2014. Spring 2014, so obviously you'll all be buying that. Um, Victoria Smith, who you may also know as Glosswitch, 
writes for the New Statesman and her own blog. She once described herself as a humorless feminist in mummy blogger clothing. So afterwards, you know, you can let her know whether you think that's right or not. Um, <laughs> here we have Juliet Jakes. Uh, she writes regularly on gender, literature, football, sport, film, all kinds of things for the New Statesman and other publications. Um, and she's currently working on turning her acclaimed transgender journey series for The Guardian into a book. Uh, we have Bim Adewinmi, uh, a journalist, writer, editor for New Statesman, The Guardian, among other places, and she's working on a collection of short stories. These are all things you're obviously going to read and buy. Um, <laughs> Laurie Penny, a columnist and contributing editor to The New Statesman, writes for a number of other publications too, and she's the author of several books, including Meat Market and Discordia. Um, and Helen, you already know, deputy editor of The New Statesman, also a blogger for the website, where she writes about things like video games, online sexism, and the media generally. So, we'll now kick off, and we'll start with Rhiannon, who is going to tell us what she thinks the most important issue facing feminism today is. Um, for me, personally, it's um, sex and relationships, education in schools. Um, this is something I feel really, really strongly about. I went to a state comprehensive in North Wales. Um, from what I gather, talking to my friends of the same age and older and younger, actually, um, state sex education is a very kind of... It, it varies sporadically depending on the school. Um, for us, we had one lesson which involved... Um, we, didn't have we didn't have bananas, we had actual models of a penis, plastic with, you know, very lifelike. Um, and we, you know, we put the condom on, on the penis and then we blew the condoms up like balloons and we rubbed baby oil into them. And the intention of this was my deputy head teacher who was um, making us do this. He was, I'd say, probably about 65 male, um, very embarrassed. And, um, you know, the illustrative purpose of this was to show that you should not use baby oil as lube because it makes the condom burst. And that was, that was the grand sum total of our sex education. Um, and out of, I'd say, there were two, about 250 of us in the year. And I'd say by the time we got to the end of year 11, which is our GCSE year, at least 10% of the girls had had babies. And part of that was because, well, there was absolutely no sex education. Um, even basic kind of knowledge about the fact that you could go to the school nurse and you could get the pill. Um, and as a result, you know, many of these girls kind of missed out on opportunities that otherwise, you know, some of the smartest, cleverest girls I know, missed out on getting their A-levels, going to university, you know, pursuing careers that they perhaps wanted to, you know, pursue. Some of them got abortions, but I think a lot of them would go to Liverpool, which was the nearest big city, so that their parents didn't find out, because we were a very small rural community. If you, you know, your doctor would know everything about you, they'd be your mum's doctor as well, they'd be your dad's doctor as well. Um, but it's not just to do with kind of reproductive rights, it's also to do with kind of, I'd say, you know, the nature of relationships in general. I mean, there was no teaching about what consent meant, whether, you know, you know, that you, you could say no to a boy and that it didn't make you frigid and it didn't make you kind of um, a loser. And I think, you know, that's the thing about being a teenager is you're treading this very fine line, you're getting these messages from kind of pornography and raunch culture that you should be sexy. I mean, when I was a teenager, the most important thing 
I felt was to be sexy and you know you're getting this message that you should be sexy but at the same time if you are sexy you get called a slut and you know it's just horrible and there's no kind of education surrounding that often it's too embarrassing to talk to your mum about um, you know and I think it's important that we educate men as well that we talk to men about you know the way especially young men about the way that we should behave in relationships and the way that women should be treated teenage girls are most at risk of domestic violence that are most at risk of that so I think it's important that you know perhaps we mobilise a group of young people who are kind of more on the level of the kids that need educating to go into schools and talk to them about these things because all too often it's kind of an adult who's very, very old and embarrassed who doesn't want to talk to you about it. So I, I, I definitely say that's, that's the most important issue, um, educating, especially to do you know, with consent, educating young women and young men as to kind of what relationships entail. Thanks very much, Rhiannon. Um, do any of our panellists want to come back to Rhiannon on that, or should we move straight on to our next thing? Okay. Okay. Um, Holly, I think, is going to talk to us about reproductive freedom. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. and it's tough to follow tales about um, baby oil smothered um, condoms and uh, realistic penis models. But um, I think probably the most important issue facing feminism today for me would be um, sort of ensuring reproductive freedom, mainly through access to um, the pill and abortion, um, because it's a sort of global issue. I mean, in a sort of more developed sense, when the pill first came out, Time magazine featured it on their front cover because it had had such a dramatic effect on women going into work. And um, in, um, in sort of developing countries, we've, uh, at the Vigenda, we've been uh, asked to go to a lot of um, speeches with Women for Refugee Women, the charity, where they specifically mentioned to us that um, the sort of main battleground for poverty um, for women is sort of um, getting access to the pill and um, often to abortion so that there isn't this trap of a uh, poverty cycle where... Um, women can't control the amount of children they have and then obviously that leads to overpopulation and starvation. Um, obviously as well, um, access to abortion is um, an international issue and um, a civilised society should respect um, bodily autonomy for women. There's no excuse not to and as we see sort of recently in Ireland, um, that's a problem very close to home. So I think for me that would be the most important issue. Thanks, Holly. Um, Victoria, you're going to talk a little bit about early years education. Yes. Yes. Oh, sorry, Laura, you want to... Yes, go for it. I was wondering if you could explain a little bit more about why we use the term reproductive freedom rather than just abortion rights, because it's so important. I suppose um, I use reproductive freedom because I was meaning also um, your freedom of how, when to reproduce, so the pill and things like that. Um, rather than merely abortion rights. Um, that was my main sort of linguistic reason. Yeah. Yeah. Victoria, sorry, go ahead. Yes, I was going to talk about um, children and what we're teaching them about gender difference and what they grow up thinking about it. And I realise this may feel a little bit like um, I'm being, um, I'm, I'm the mummy, so I'll, I'll talk about kids. But I think it is a really fundamental issue because certainly from a lot of how I feel I've developed as a feminism, as a feminist, and how a lot of 
people, I think, come to feminism, it's not through learning about it, it's through a kind of unlearning all the rubbish that you pick up when you're growing up and it becomes really ingrained and you get a kind of ingrained sexism that's in your head that you don't even notice it's there. And I think this links into ideas about privilege and the way that we don't question inequality on all sorts of levels, not just to do with gender, is that some people just grow up with this ingrained sense of entitlement and others have this almost imposter feeling that um, they're not quite right. And I think with children, it comes at a very early age um, in the culture that surrounds them, in the fact that um, the TV programmes they watch, the books they read, main characters are male, in, t in the kind of ideas that we have on child-rearing. I think recently, particularly, there's been a real resurgence in very gender-stereotypical ideas about how you raise children and how you educate them within schools that really shapes what people think of themselves. And I think there's quite a strong message that I see, certainly in the things that come at my children, that men are people, but women are just women, and sort of men have a kind of central role in life, and they're kind of active, whereas women are kind of a passive adjunct. And I think this feeds into so many attitudes. I think it feeds into rape culture. I think it feeds into our basic ongoing acceptance of the fact that women do most of the unpaid or low-paid work. And, and you know, this has been a thing that was a big issue in second-wave feminism, and it's still not sorted, but we almost say now, oh, but women have had feminism, they've had the choice, and they don't want to do that. And I think that's because by the time people reach adulthood, it's too late to really question it. And I think, I suppose what I'm really saying is we really need to get, get them young and kind of <laughs> not, not brainwashing them, but unbrainwashing them and keeping them... You know, babies will grow up to be people. They're not just boy, girl, pink, blue, they really have to be able to grow up with the choices and the potential and, and to feel that they're fully people, that they're not just um, a gender identity. So, um, Victoria, can I ask you something? Because I have quite a lot of nieces and nephews and I'm awful at being the aunt that goes, I won't buy you any pink Lego, I won't buy you any dolls. <laughs> um, my sisters take the piss out of me a lot. But on a practical level, how do you deal with it when everybody's so insistent on, is it a boy or a girl, you know, giving them blue clothes? And how do you deal with that, having to sort of reject other people, you know, well-meaning people, trying to project that onto them? I find it very difficult with... Um, sort of my family have these very fixed ideas. Um, I mean, I've got two boys, and um, my partner's sister has two boys, and we often say, gosh, we're really relieved that nobody has a girl, because I think then the difference would be really obvious. But, but I think we buy our kids sort of whatever... Not whatever they like, but sort of... <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, my... It's funny, my youngest son, who's three, got a doll's house for Christmas and he was asking for it for ages and he wanted a pink doll's house and he was really fixated on it. But it was interesting that when we went to his nursery school play and they said, what do you want? And he said, a lorry. It was like he knew that in a different context a different thing would be expected of him. And then almost I thought, does he say he wants a doll's house? Because he knows I'd like him. <laughs> you know, it's like, what does he really want? And it's just really hard to sort of... I think you just have to try really hard to be neutral about it. And, you know, when he's going like, I'm not wearing pink socks, they're girls' socks. And you're just like, and you have you, different feet. It's just, you wrote before about um, one of your kids, want, he wanted to be a witch yeah. um, for Halloween or something. Yeah. And uh, a grandparent kept saying, no, no, you're a wizard. That was yeah. my brother. It was yeah. just this kind of... You know, it's because he liked Room on the Broom. And it's a witch. <laughs> and it, he was just like, wizard, wizard. And it's just, it's really, people get really het up about it and really 
don't confuse them. But I think it's quite confusing to fill their head with all these ideas that half of the colours they see and half of the toys they want to play with are off-limits. And, and it, it just shapes how they think for such a long time. Something else you mentioned there about this idea of having to unlearn yeah. bad things. What do you think the, the biggest thing you had to unlearn was? I still feel like I'm doing it all the time. I mean, mm. even, but even tiny things like, I mean, recently I was talking to a friend and we were both saying that we think our partners are better at filling the car with petrol, which is absolutely <laughs> ridiculous. And it's, and it's just absolute rubbish like that. But it's because our mothers would never fill the car with petrol. Because you don't. And it's, it's just little things that you just don't question it. And mm. I wonder if anyone else has something like that. Laurie said that taking the bins out was a blue job. It is a blue job. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, like, yeah. <clears throat> I, I used to have uh, fights with my old housemate about this, but partly because we had a bin that was really tall, so I couldn't like get it out without spilling all over. Like, that's fair. It is fair. So it was a height thing. It's not a gender like, thing. It's, <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. Anyone else got something they feel they had to unlearn? So, yeah. Anyway, um, moving on. Juliet, you're going to talk about intersectionality, I believe. Yeah, um, with regards to the place of um, kind of gender variant and queer perspectives uh, as part of the feminist movement. Um, before I kick off with that, though, I'll just say, Victoria, my childhood would have been miles better if my parents had bought me a doll's house. So, you know, um, it would have made telling them all sorts of things much easier further down the line. Um, oh, you should get one now. It's brilliant. <laughs> yeah, it's never too late, is it? Um, all right, no. Um, another thing I'd like to pick up on, uh, Victoria talks about um, unlearning things. And uh, I had a very different kind of coming to feminism because I was born and raised male and um, I was living as male at university uh, about 12 years ago and um, I considered myself radical and a feminist um, and I came across the Janice Raymond text, The Transsexual Empire, it was quoted in a record sleeve by a band I really liked. And uh, some of you may be familiar with this text, it's the most um, aggressive and sustained feminist uh, critique of transsexuality and there is, uh, I'm going to make myself quite unpopular here, but there's a kernel of sense in the way Raymond talks about gender identity clinics in the 70s uh, being run mostly by men who demanded a certain kind of stereotypical feminine uh, presentation from transsexual women who went through those gender clinics but was really um, I think the kind of thing you can say not particularly stringent uh, in analysing the nature of that relationship between gender identity clinics and the people who went through them, which was often actually very antagonistic. Um, so it was quite interesting for me coming to feminism and then finding a brand of feminism that seemed to be quite prevalent that didn't really want to welcome me as a kind of gender variant person. And I thought, well, hang on a minute, I have experience of being raised male, of spending time in all male spaces, um, and encountering the kind of level of misogyny that you can encounter in certain spaces when people think there are no women or female-identified people present. Um, from there, I became interested in, in you know, kind of uh, more contemporary feminism, the kind of line that runs through Judith Butler um, and talks about gender being a kind of performative thing um, 
about gender roles that we internalize and externalize and the relationship between ourselves and the society we live in. Um, and I began kind of exploring that through kind of feminist and queer performance arts, a line that runs through the 60s, 70s and 80s. Uh, and you find a very interesting alliance between queer people and feminism. Um, and this has led me um, to become immersed in intersectional theory, um, this idea that there are a number of different um, prejudices that people can um, encounter in different spaces and they can sort of overlap with each other in strange ways. And I started off from the point of view of thinking, well, I'm transgender and then transsexual, and I experienced a lot of prejudice, but intersectional theory actually allowed me to think, well, what privilege do I still have? What power do I have? Um, how best to use it? And I think these are really, really useful uh, concepts for anybody who is approaching particularly kind of mainstream media from a permanent perspective, if you have a platform that gives you a level of power, I think it's far better rather than saying, well, I belong to X minority, um, this is how I am victimized. Um, I think it's very good for media practitioners and people of influence in those spheres to think about what powers they retain, how they've been able to attain that platform, what privileges have taken them there. Um, and hopefully it will make people a bit more willing to listen to other perspectives. It's all very well saying that feminism should take on patriarchal attitudes and attack them first and then sort out its internal differences. But it's very difficult to motivate yourself to be a part of that movement if you feel you're not allowed to be. Um, my final kind of thought on that really is that these kind of intersectional approaches um, should always take into account class as well. Um, and particularly taking a more broad um, approach to different oppressions and how they overlap will hopefully get people to think a bit differently about equality campaigns. Um, it's long been a big um, problem of mine that mainstream equality campaigns for, for example, LGBT rights focus very much on attaining access to the most kind of conservative institutions and... Um, and kind of buy into the kind of dominant social structures. Um, so what you end up with is a sort of a form of LGBT um, equality um, that emphasizes equality under a kind of conservative social system. And I think probably uh, most people at a New Statesman um, conference will sort of understand that equality under a conservative social system isn't really equality at all. Thank you very much. One thing I wanted to ask you, um, what, what sort of practical steps, somewhat, say someone who's just recently coming into a discussion of feminism, what practical steps can they take immediately to, as you say, kind of identify their platform and, not f and feel welcome immediately? Um, that's a really good question. Uh, well, I don't I'm know not, if we even know the answer to sure it. I but have I think, an yeah. um, I think it's more... It's adopting an attitude, really, um, that adopting an attitude of just self-questioning, I mm. think, and a kind of a level of self-consciousness um, about your own kind of actions and ideas and where they come from. Um, I'm not sure I can really offer anything too much more concrete than that. Actually. No, I think um, that's probably right. Um, I know, Bim, you also wanted to talk about intersectionality, so maybe you could comment at this point. 
Yeah, um, I, um, I was basically, um, when it came to selecting what I wanted to talk about this evening, I decided to go for the most obvious thing I could as a black woman who's also a feminist, intersectionality. Um, it seems to me to be the buzzword of the moment, and in particular because it's not a word I heard very much of um, when I first began looking um, at feminism. Um, and there are, I think, reasons for that, in that we, there wasn't the internet when I was growing up, so I did not have the same um, access to resources that people have nowadays, which is why I find it particularly alarming slash distressing when people say, oh, that's academic nonsense. And you think, no, it's not. It's really not. I learned this literally two years ago, and I did so by going forth and looking. So for me, intersectionality um, inevitably um, crosses my life. Um, and before we had a term for it, this is the interesting, or at least the key thing, I was living intersectionality before I had a name for it. So I find it interesting when some feminists, um, some columnist feminists, will say <laughs> stuff like, oh, what is this academic word, blah, 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 it's bollocks. I mean, excuse my French. But it's just, it's nonsense. Um, I grew up in London and in Lagos, in Nigeria. Um, my family is Muslim, I'm clearly a black woman, I'm clearly of African descent, my name is Bim, so it's pretty African. Um, there's a number of things that have contributed to the person that I am today. And then for someone to say, let's not focus on this one thing, let's look at this big thing, is, it's a nonsense, it's impossible. Um, and I was, I was writing something that will be um, online tomorrow for New Statesman, so plug. Um, but, um, it will, I, it's good. Sorry? It will, it's very good. Oh, thank, you. thank you very much. I paid her to say that. Um, but um, it, I went to the Women of the World Festival um, at the South Bank um, earlier this year, and there was a bit when Mickey Turner, who's a photojournalist, um, and she spoke about talking to Nikki Giovanni. I'm sure you all know who Nikki Giovanni is, right? Oh, oh dang, okay. Um, <laughs> Nikki Giovanni is a writer, a poet, an activist, an amazing, fantastic black woman, uh, fearless and just fantastic. Anyway, she, um, this woman, Mickey, was talking to her and asked her, why do you think there was, you know, black women were so absent from the equal rights um, movement of the 70s? And Nikki just said, that wasn't our struggle. And I thought that nailed it. And then two, a, a day later, I went to see Alice Walker, again at the South Bank. You all know Alice Walker, right? Okay. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> and um, somebody, uh, Mariella Frostrup was doing the Q&A afterwards, and she, made, she wrote this really long question about how, what are the sisters in the West doing for their counterparts in the developing world, and all this stuff. And um, First of all, Alice gave a fantastic answer and very calm, kind of went, I don't understand the question. <laughs> <laughs> to which the rest of the crowd went, woo! Anyway, um, but then she answered it and said, let me tell you something. Uh, to her view, she said, feminists in the West have adopted, or rather they are looking, um, and they have taken on the ideas of their fathers and brothers. So when Nikki Giovanni says that wasn't our struggle, and when Alice says they've taken on their brothers and fathers' fights, it's very much a case of, for many, many women of color across the world, when people were fighting for this feminism, the second wave, all that good stuff, which you know has 
amazing repercussions for, I mean, well, good things for the rest of us. The fact of the matter is, it wasn't, black women were not fighting that fight. They were trying to live. It wasn't about being equal in that way. You have to select the thing that is most useful to your survival. And I think interse intersectionality, this idea that we have to discuss it around, for me, gender, uh, I'm sorry, um, um, race and geographical location is incredibly important because I hear a lot of feminists, and inevitably they're almost always white, saying stuff like, you know, let's fight this thing and oh, this infighting or this, and it's like, no, I'm living it. So it, it can't, we can't deal with it later. And just because I have a headache, but I also have this gangrene, doesn't mean that we're gonna just ignore the headache and let's just deal with the gangrene. It's like, yeah, but I'm really, my head really hurts and it's affecting me, so can I have that? And we're told all the time to forget the headache. And I don't think we can, I don't think we should. Um, so that's, that's, that's where I'm coming from. And then the other element to that is the fact that, like I said, I'm Nigerian. I got my passport a few years ago, so it's official. Um, <laughs> And I often hear lots of people saying stuff like, let's go and help them. Uh, I was watching something today with Femen, the topless activist, and there were the women taking off their tops at the Eiffel Tower, and they were talking about all their sisters in the Arab world and across Africa, and she said, and I, 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 I shit you not, she said, um, we know your fights, we want to help you. And I have never felt the urge to reach into my screen, go stand like, and just shake a human being and go, what are you saying? There is this idea that we must be saved, those of us not in the geographical West. Yes, there are problems. Yes, there are issues. And I say this as a Muslim as well as a black woman, so I'm wearing all the hats today. <laughs> and I know, I know the urge to, for people to come out and help. And yes, there is value in allies. But then, similar to what Juliet says, being an ally is not a state. It is a process. And I think a lot of people stand on this thing of, I'm an ally, so you know what? I'm helping you, take the fucking help, take the help. <laughs> and that's not how it works. We have to work on the ground with, you know, partnerships. There has to be, there have to be collaborations. We cannot prescribe one feminism fits all. It's a nonsense, it can't happen. So that's, that's where I am at the moment. Well, thanks very much, Bim. One thing I would love you to talk more about is, because, because of some of the columnists you mentioned, I think intersectionality's got a bit of a bad press recently and has become quite closely associated with this idea of infighting. What do you think we can do to separate them off again? Honestly, I don't care to separate them. Screw it, yeah, we are infighting, if that's what you Let's want fight. to call it. I think this idea that you come to feminism and it is a space where everything is amazing and it flows beautifully, in no other circumstance do we expect that. In no other place, mm. suddenly, because we're women and we're talking about issues of women, it's a case of, well, why aren't we all getting along as we discuss these like things? Like nice girls. Like <laughs> nice people. And it's such a, it's, it's, it just doesn't work that way. So this idea of, I think it's fine for us to be mm. shouty and a bit angry about it, because guess what? It's anger making. That's how I feel. Yeah. But then I'm a very aggressive person, so. <laughs> Can I? Can I just maybe, um, something that's been on my mind with uh, you know, the, this wave of columnists that you've alluded to, talking about intersectionality, and the tactic is often to construct a kind of straw man version of the people, who, funnily enough, happen to agree with them. 
and also find the concept that they don't want people to understand too difficult to understand. Yeah. Um, so I wonder if you sort of agree with my thesis, this is basically a gatekeeping tactic. Oh, I completely agree. And I recognise it from other places, from other discussions. Um, and it's not, it's not exclusive to feminism by any stretch. It's everywhere. But it's, I suppose it's more disappointing in feminism because you assume that these people are with you, not against you. So to have it quite explicitly laid out that, no, 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 you might think we're with you, but we're not. And then what I love, one of my favorite things, a friend of mine who is an author, um, she was talking, I was talking to her for a piece about retweeting praise on Twitter. And she said, oh, you never do that. You wouldn't go around kind of telling people she thinks I'm amazing. It just doesn't work like that. <laughs> you, you wouldn't would. say, well, if you did that, then you're a terrible human being, so you shouldn't do it. But I love it when somebody says, somebody shows a sign of support for one of these columnists. I love how they've become this code columnist. Um, <laughs> can, I, can I absent myself from this? Feel free to. <laughs> feel free to. Um, and then there is inevitably a, a flurry of retweets. Exactly, that's what I meant. I've seen things where you click on one, they kind of go, never mind, so-and-so. We understand what you're talking about. And I'm like, do you not see what you're doing right here? So I think that's, I, I completely agree. There is this us and them, and people have been lumped into the us, and sometimes I want to say, they're doing you no favors by putting you under this group of people who cannot learn. It's that thing, when I wrote about Covenjane Wallace, and people kind of go, her, her name is so hard. And I was like, well, you've somehow learned to say Zach Galifianakis. You've learned to say <laughs> René Zellweger. You can learn to say Quivenjane Wallace. You can learn to see where there is privilege. Oh, yeah, special word, privilege. <laughs> you can learn. And you, it's a matter of choice. And not enough people choose to do that. It's because it's, I understand it. It's comfortable. We want to stay where we are, where we are, top dog, where things are smooth and things are great. But if everyone else is crying out around you, if, if I have this headache, and you're choosing only to see the gangrene, then it, we're not going any further. I'm going to stop talking, but anyway. That's Helen, you want well, to Well, no, I, I kind of thought, I, just because as somebody who's been on the kind of the wrong side of this argument, I guess, because my feeling is that intersectionality is a fantastic concept, it's a, but it's a, hard, it's a hard word. And my experience of feminism is often is going and talking about to, to audiences who aren't feminists. I mean, I think this must be like the only room in London where the majority of people know what the word cis means, for example. <laughs> Which is wonderful, it's a great room to be in. But you have to try and communicate to people in a language that they can understand. And it's not that they're stupid, it's that they're busy. It's they're busy and they, they need to know what this argument has got to do with their lives and what it's got to offer them. And that's where I think that I do slightly diverge from you two, because I can often find that sometimes there's so much attempt in kind of finding an ideological purity that there's not enough exception that sometimes people are genuinely trying to learn, but they just don't have the words right, they don't quite know it. And it's not that they're, it's not that they're bad or ill-intentioned, it's just that they're not there yet. And I definitely don't believe in this idea of, like, it's up to you to educate yourself, because actually it's not. We're, it, we're you know, if, if we're part of a social movement, it is our responsibility to be ambassadors for that social movement. I hear what you're saying, but again, I can't agree fully. I think there is... I've had people come to me and say, when I've been tweeting about something, for example, because Twitter is the, is the means, and then they'll say, so what do you suggest I read? Mm. And I give a couple of, I give sometimes, but other times I just kind of think, man, I learned this myself. It's, there's, when I went to university, <laughs> which wasn't even that long ago, Google was a baby. <laughs> and in the meantime, it's come up leaps and bounds. You have books on Google, for God's sake. It's not, I mean, I know people are busy, and I know I spend a lot of time on the internet, so you would think I wasn't very busy, and I'm not, but. <laughs> but, there's time. 
And you might get things wrong, and there is nothing wrong with getting things wrong. That's to be expected as you start out on a journey. But I also think there needs to be less of the coddling. I hear people say stuff like, but how do we introduce feminism to young people? And I just think, the same way we introduce most things, just throw it out there. People are inquisitive by nature. That's what marks us out as human beings, that and the opposable thumbs. We can do stuff, we can flip pages, we can click. <laughs> I understand that it's hard sometimes. But I don't know, I think it feels very much like a luxury sometimes. I'm not saying you should go out there and just, you know, swallow all the books and then just regurgitate them because it's impossible. And I'm still learning as well, I get that, but I do think there is something to be said for some intellect. If you say, if someone says to you, if you hear about feminism and you are interested in feminism, that you, that's self-acknowledged. Yeah. Then I imagine you can put a tiny bit of effort. <laughs> but I'm talking about people who aren't interested in feminism. Like I went on LBC to talk about International Women's Day and they said, so, what is feminism? <laughs> well, well, let me just Hello, tell London's cab drivers about what feminism is. And I couldn't really go, well, you put up this an amazing book by Bell Hooks, and you should definitely read some Judith Butler. And because, you know, people don't. People have, you know, they come home from work, they're tired, they put their kids to bed, and then they just want to watch TV. And, 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 and I, that's, that's my problem, is that I, those are the people that I want to talk to about feminism, not people who, it may be people who can't even, you know, who don't have the time or the energy to read their academic books. Mm. And I do think there's, that's my problem with some of the kind of academic language and the, some of the sort of idea about self-educating people is that we're just, we're up against fundamentally people are very busy. I think, um, as interesting as all this is, I think we have to move on to yeah, Laurie's thing, otherwise we're going to, you know, completely run out of time, but we'll come back to this in the questions, I'm sure. I um, mind, we can just go on. Well, <laughs> do you want to have your point and also talk about your, your issue at the same time then? Okay. And men. Oh, I'm men, yeah. <laughs> three things, um, Laurie, three things. Three things. Um, so, uh, Caroline and Helen <coughs> emailed us before all this and asked us, we have to, have to pick one issue that, that matters most to you in terms of feminism. And so I, was, I got out a sheet of paper and I wrote, is it, I couldn't decide if it was sex or class. And, and I thought, and, and, I, and, and I was looking at this, I actually made a list, it's like, should I talk about sex in four minutes or should I talk about class? And actually I was looking at this piece of paper and thinking, isn't that the problem? actually, with feminism right now and with, and with gender politics and intersectionality right now is that in so many cases, we're made to choose, not just in the feminist movement, but also uh, within the left, within, um, I don't know if everybody here considers themselves part of something broad and amorphous called the left. I certainly still do, with certain caveats. Um, and, uh, or, or within the liberal movement. Um, the, the idea very much is that either women's issues are a side issue or issues of class and work and money and power are a side issue. And whatever space you're in, you have to shut up and only talk about the one thing. And this is where, this is where discourses like intersectionality are massively, massively important. Um, F. Scott Fitzgerald says that the mark of true intelligence is to be able to hold more than one idea in your head at the same time with, and still function. And <coughs> I, I, I do believe that most people are cleverer than, than I think sometimes um, when your job is to, is to be part of the media structure, there's an inbuilt, particularly in Britain, um, and, in, and in certain parts of the US, there's, there's a tendency to sort of look down to readers and to assume the conversation is one way and assume people are more, more stupid than they are. 
I guess. But actually, most people are able to hold more than one idea in their head at the same time. The trouble is that feminism over the past 30 years has become... I'm not going to mince words here. It's become a movement designed to further the interests of white, middle-class, cis, straight women living mainly in the West, normally in London or New York. That's it, basically. Um, and that's, that's the main problem I have with feminism right now. Although I still call myself a feminist, I believe feminism can and should be different. Um, it's... Uh, a report came out this week by the IPPR, um, the Institute for Public Policy Research, which uh, suggest, said that, that, well, the headline on, on all the articles about it said, feminism has failed working class women. Um, and uh, the, the findings were, you know, surprise, surprise, um, the people who have made most gains from the women's movement in uh, the past 50 years have been women with existing wealth, women who own property, women who are in partnerships where there is a significant amount of property, women who can afford basically to hand the, uh, the collective oppression of work and power down the chain to somebody with from a less well-off social background normally. And the, the, the oppression of work and power, which we're talking about, unpaid labour, domestic work, boring things like that, that it's very hard to get pieces into the papers about. Um, this stuff is handed down often to uh, women from other countries, uh, women who are not white, women with children of their own to look after. Um, meanwhile, we're still talking. The headline issue over the last couple of years has been can women have it all? I mean, really. Um, where, where, by the way, it all, the definition of what the, this it all, which we're supposed to have, is, is now uh, marriage, babies, and, uh, and a career in, in finance or politics. This is, meant to be, this is the one thing we're now allowed to want. And it turns out that even that we can't have. So basically, um, and, and, and then there's a rash of articles saying, well, maybe, maybe feminism was wrong all along. Maybe we should just, you know, buy some calf kidson and go back to the kitchen. <laughs> sorry, I have a thing about calf kidson. I'm really sorry. It's, it's totally, it's actually totally irrational. I, I try and squeeze it in in every talk I do. They're, they're nice <laughs> so, details, Laurie. I don't understand what your problem is. They're nice details. They're not, they cost like £24 for a bit of cloth with some birds. Anyway, so, I'm not it's really, it's really irrational. <laughs> anyway, class, feminism, power. Um, but, uh, but nobody's asking when we're talking about having it all. Um, in, that, in the article, the Anne-Marie Slaughter article, you know, women, can women have it all? Really? No, no, we can't. Um, the, the answer was, well, even the women who are trying to have it all, they manage to have it all because they have an army of staff. And hang on, like, has anybody asked whether the nanny can have it all? No, it would be a stupid question. You know, that's not even on the table. Um, for me, and for large numbers of people, the reason feminism sounds alienating um, is because we're not talking about the issues that affect most people most of the time. Like, it's really interesting, Helen, that you said, well, people, people don't have time for this because they're going home and they're looking after their kids. Well, that's, a, that's exactly the point. Women are looking after the kids. And this same study showed that women still do over 75% of the childcare, domestic work, housework. And this is in partnerships where there are, where there are uh, man and woman 
uh, raising kids. Um, and in single parent households, uh, 92, I think, percent of single parents are women, and they they generally do all the childcare. It's it's issues like this, which are which which sound less than sexy when when you uh, when you when you pitch them or try and talk about them, but actually. This is what it gets down to, the meat and gristle of sex and power and how they intersect. For me, it is possible to be a feminist and to achieve limited gains within, um, with, within a, a, a notionally feminist structure. You can talk about sexual violence or you can talk about, um, about body image issues, for example, without talking about economics, work, and power, and socialism. It is possible to be a feminist without being a socialist, although that helps. I sort of want to, I want to get a campaign going where we put that on the mugs instead and give them out, but I don't think it'd be that popular. But um, I think it's really stupid to have an analysis of work in economics and socialism without being a feminist. For me, it, it just doesn't work. You can't talk about money and power without talking about unpaid labour, without talking about the work of sex and child rearing, without talking about sex workers, obviously not all of whom are female and cis, but that comes within the spectrum of work and sex and power. It's, I'm aware that I've gone on, so I'll stop. <laughs> um, but it's really, um, it's really, for me, it's really interesting to see how class has been sidelined as part of the discussion of feminism, and then feminism itself is blamed for not fixing stuff for, for the working class and working class women. Um, I, I had a point to make, which was about your talk, but I don't know if I have time. Do I no, have time? go ahead, go ahead. <coughs> oh, yeah, um, I, I read last week, which I, um, I thought of when you were talking about how... Um, I was going to come back and say, talk more about feminism and colonialism, because um, over the past, well, feminism has long, feminism, in inverted commas, fighting for the rights of women over there somewhere that isn't here in the West, has long been used as a, as a cipher for colonialist impulses, and we saw that um, we saw that uh, hundreds of years ago, and we see it, you know, in the past ten years, over the where notionally saving what George Bush called the women of cover um, was used as one of the pretexts for in, invading Afghanistan, which of course was nonsense. But um, feminism is still used as part of this weird patronising discourse. So there was this. Um, so in India, obviously, I, I imagine everybody here has been following what's been going on in India, one of the most amazing cultural movements, grassroots movements against rape culture, culture probably ever seen in the world. And um, I think last month, a group of Harvard academics helpfully put together a package for the women of Delhi, advising them on how to fight rape culture. Um, and sent it to them because they were academics and they knew best, which is which is stupid enough anyway. In before you consider American universities, right? Have you have you any idea of the rape culture that goes on at American universities? And you open to just look at the internet, look at Reddit for God's sake. It's uh, American universities are one of the. One of the kind of the places where rape culture is fostered and developed and made popular and sort of funny and it's uh, it they have no it's like 
academics in that part of the Western world have no place to be to be telling to be to be telling the women of India that this is like this is how you do it, guys. Just that, have a few frat houses. That actually feeds a very nice into what Helen wanted to nominate as her most important. Yeah, you, I mean, you, you mentioned a couple of things. We when we wrote a, a new statesman leader last year, and it's one of the most powerful things I've ever written. It started with three words, which were "rape happens everywhere." Um, and I thought that was really important to make. We were talking about in the context of George Galloway's remarks about Julian Assange and his you know, idea that this was bad sexual etiquette, this was all, all that he was accused of. And again, it comes back to that idea of like, but you can't, you know, these big men on the left, they're doing important work, so we mustn't, this is women are just collateral damage along the way. Um, and so I really wanted to talk about rape because I think it's been such a big issue recently. And it's one that, although I find it incredibly depressing to talk about, I also see reason for optimism. There's been two massive cases recently. The first was in India, the gang rape on the bus in Delhi. And that's interesting because that is a woman who did everything right. Uh, you know, she was accompanied by a male companion. She wasn't out on her own. And that did nothing to protect her. And there was a second case in Steubenville in Ohio that Laurie wrote about. And that's a woman who did everything wrong. She got drunk. She knew her accusers. She talked to them afterwards. Uh, and the way that that was casually documented in text messages, the text messages between her and one of the protagonists um, are heartbreaking in that she asked, you know, why don't you like me anymore? Why aren't you talking to me anymore? She hadn't got any idea about what they had done to her. Um, but what was interesting about that was the coverage of that trial. We saw a lot of victim blaming going on. But we also, for the first time that I can remember, saw a really concerted resistance to that to a lot of people standing up saying, it doesn't matter how drunk you are, it doesn't matter if you're friends with people, they don't have any right to invade your bodily integrity when you can't consent. Um, and so although I found that a very harrowing case to read about, I found it one that gave me cause for optimism. And that's why I would nominate rape and sexual violence, because if you fundamentally can't feel safe as a woman, just because you are a woman, then it affects everything that you do. Um, Laurie and I both write a lot and talk a lot about rape threats online and that's another way of saying you're not welcome here, we don't want you to feel safe, don't have a voice, don't speak out, don't be too noisy, don't be too visible um, and combating that is incredibly important to me and that's what I would nominate. Yeah, does anyone want to come back on I'd like on to that? say yeah. something to, to what, what Helen said. Um, Again, I'm just giving you my column for free. Um, but, um, I but you'll be giving it for free on the internet tomorrow, anyway. That's the problem with journalism. That's different free. That's an HTTP free. This is in person. Um, I mentioned the slot walk um, in my column to, for that will be tomorrow. Um, and there was something that I, again, something that I agreed with very broadly in terms of what it was trying to do. But another thing that made me kind of pause and not go on any of the slot walks and kind of had me slightly reserved was that as much as I agreed with the idea, because this is entirely true, how you dress, you know, no means no, yes means yes, end of, that's it. And a lack of a, a, lack of a no doesn't mean yes either. So there's a whole spectrum. Essentially, there needs to be, you know, this is what Rihanna was talking about in terms of consent. It's absolutely imperative. Um, but as somebody in a brown body, which I've had, by the way, all my life, um, I understand that there are certain things that my brown body connotes things that are beyond my own power, beyond my own, uh, my own ability to define. It's, it's out there, it's in this cloud, um, what my sexuality is as a straight black woman. I know what that is. Um, and I think for many people, in the same way that lots of black women won't call themselves feminist, but will call themselves womanist, um, there is, again, I'm looking around the room and I'm trying to see some brown faces and I'll be honest, there's someone waving up top. Um, <laughs> Hiya. Um, 
But this is the case that you, you often, the people who, when people talk about this stuff, this idea of the, the, um, that my experience is universal, and yet there's a whole bunch of us. I know we're a minority, but we're here. And we are basically kind of put aside. I mean, my, my biggest focus is popular culture. So I write a lot about representation in popular culture. And I was watching an ad recently. It was for Venus, the shavy things. Um, and they just collaborated with Olay, Oil of Olay, if you remember from when you were kids. Um, and the woman in the ad, from the beginning, to the end is brown. And I bet you nobody else noticed. But I told another black friend, and she was like, Yes! She was black! And we had a moment. It's the same thing that when I was watching the trailer for Shame with Michael Fassbender, right? Um, and I saw Nicole Bihari, and I called my, I literally called my sister and said, Have you seen the trailer? There's a black woman in the trailer. <laughs> and representation means a lot, and you don't notice it because you are the universal. And I say you in this general white audience. If you are the default, you do not see how things affect you separately. So when people talk about rape, for example, and there's a statistic in America, and they go one in, one in four women before the age of 18, American women, will be sexually harassed. And then I just saw somebody reply very quietly and said, yes, that's, um, that's double for brown bodies. And it's even higher if you're Native American. Mm -hmm. And that was just a little thing. It wasn't, but, but this, this universal, as this, you know, my story is a universal. So when we talk about these, all the issues that we've mentioned today, there are extra intersectionality. This is what I mean about intersectionality, that before the term, before the academic term, people, people were aware of what it was because they were living it and they were around it. Um, and again, it talks about class. I grew up, um, like I said, partly in Lagos and partly in, in London. And in London, I was very firmly working class, and there was no doubt about it. I grew up in a council house, council flat even, not even a house, yeah, um, in Stratford, in East London. I don't know if you know Stratford, but pre-Olympic money, it was a shithole, right? Um, and that's not even changed even now, which I love deeply inside. I'm like, yeah, look at all this, this is rough, it's brilliant. Um, and I know when people talk, I, lots of people talk about stuff like you know, the white working class and all this stuff. And I think to myself, oh, I grew up with that. And back then, we weren't called, they weren't called the white working class. We were all just poor together. You know, it's not a thing. You know. but, there's, there's, but then even in that context, my story will be different. And that's not me trying to take part in the oppression Olympics and kind of, because nobody wins, let's be honest. But there is something to be said for difference alongside the bigger fights that we're fighting. And too often, they're just not addressed. So that's my eternal bugbear. Uh, and it's an ongoing thing. And you learn more, and you try and do better. And that's fine, because you're allowed to, to be bad and get better. That's the nature of most things. Um, but I think the, the key thing is that people need to understand that. And it's not even that difficult to explain to people that the opportunities that you have had are not exactly the same as the opportunities another person has had. And when we say to people that this is really difficult, like Laurie says, I think we undermine. People are not stupid. They're not stupid. And most of them want to be making things better. And when we deny that they have this agency to go out and make things better, we do everyone a disservice, I think. I think on that note, we're going to break for some drinks um, and a loo break and all the rest of it. And we'll come back in about 15 minutes for your questions. Thank you very much for your attention so far. Thank you.